following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy in session 27 of our discussion of Lamortith Bedarthur by Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, we are... Uh, well, I was going to say we're going to get to the Holy Grail. Of course, we've already gotten to the Holy Grail. Uh, the Holy Grail, of course, makes a strong appearance. And one of the things that I really want to be thinking about as we're moving into this section, it's it's tempting to kind of compartmentalize the two things, right? We were in the middle of, and we're gonna we're gonna finish tonight talking about the whole Lancelot, Elaine, Guinevere thing, right? It's it's tempting to kind of compartmentalize those things. In fact, I've even sort of done that um, by the uh, the way that I've organized my slides. I'm focusing on the you know again the 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 love triangle business first, and then like oh, and then meanwhile there were all these you know several appearances of the Holy Grail in there, right? Um, so to say, it's tempting to kind of compartmentalize them that way. I don't think that that is. Um, really a fair way to do it, really, um, because the two things are clearly connected. It's not, a, it's not an accident, right? It's clearly not a coincidence that this crisis in Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship, uh, and certainly in Lancelot's own kind of moral progress here, uh, is happening at the time that the Holy Grail comes in. I mean, it's plainly not coincidental, given that the woman involved, or, you know, the other woman involved, Elaine, is like in the Holy Grail family, right? I mean, the, the, the Holy Grail is like practically a family heirloom of her family. So it's very much involved, right? He's, he's coming, uh, um, uh, he's, he's coming into contact, uh, with the whole Grail world, right? Um, anyway, uh, so, uh, uh, Karina, you're right. The Holy Grail does have way more personality than you might expect, right? I think that's a perfectly fair uh, uh, thing to say. Um, there are lots of things. Lots of people have different reactions to the Holy Grail uh, in Stramus Maori when they read it for the first time. But almost everybody finds it's not what they expected, whatever it was and whatever they think about it. Uh, it's not quite necessarily what you were... Uh, what you were expecting. Uh, <laughs> Darlonio is asking, tonight, will Lancelot finally learn to take a good look at the woman in bed with him? Answer, no. No, no, of course, nobody ever learns that lesson. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, um, uh, <laughs> you're on a, you, you, you're on a strictly need-to-know basis, whether you're in bed with somebody or fighting on the battlefield with somebody. Really best not to ask questions is one of the moral, uh, clearly, of this story. Um, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so uh, Kimber directly and Stephen indirectly are asking about how much longer... <laughs> how long is it, sir? Uh, so... Okay, I I haven't worked it out exactly, but I'm thinking. Uh, unfortunately, I've got to miss a couple weeks in February, which is going to protract it a little bit longer. It's going to be April, I think. But you know, certainly, definitely by the end of April, we'll be done. Especially if we add like a movie or two, right? Uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely April. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, very. Uh, that's. 
just to give you an idea of when we're going to be moving on. I've been trying to push things along. I did pretty well there for a while in the book of Sir Tristram, but it's hard now that we're coming to the crisis, right? And these are uh, these are some really big moments here. So anyway, um, off we go. God, people are having fun at the pace that we're going, and I'm still uh, uh, even not doing uh, full exploring the rings, the Lord of the Rings style. No, no question. Um, but anyway, all right, let's uh, let's move on. Okay, so just the, we looked at this slide at the end of last time, but just a quick review, so you'll remember that the second incident, the second time that Lance, so the first time Lancelot was in Sorcel, right? He, you know, Dame Brucen uh, takes him and gives him a potion, right? You know, he drinks something and then is immediately filled with passion. Uh, so he is, he goes voluntarily to the place because Guinevere is there. He goes to her chamber quite willingly. Um, and by the way, again, coming to that question of does this mean that they normally sleep together or what, one of the things that is unquestionable is that he thinks nothing about going to her chamber, going to her bedroom to visit her there. Now, we've seen this happen a lot with Tristram and Isolde, and I don't just mean in the scandalous way that we know Tristram and Isolde are definitely sleeping sleeping together. There's lots of other times when the two of them are not even alone there. Remember that fun incident with um, Sir Tristram and Sir Cahydens and uh, uh, La Belle Isolde when Sir Tristram discovered the letters, right, between the two of them, and Sir Cahydens ends up jumping out the window over King Mark's head? That was all happening in La Belle Isolde's bedchamber. Um, and there's... It's clear that there's, like, you need to make excuses, right? It's not uh, completely okay to hang out in the bedchamber of the queen, right? That's that's sketchy. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sleeping with her either, right? Um, so there is definitely a level of intimacy, a level of familiarity there. You know, when he shows up at this castle and he's like, hey, where's Guinevere? And, you know, the people there who look like her servants say, oh, yeah, she's in her bedroom. He's like, cool, I'll go visit, right? And that that clearly is is fine. Is Arthur fine with that, right? Is everybody okay with that? What is that? You know, again, it's not absolute proof one way or the other uh, whether or not they're actually sleeping together, but it does show this kind of this familiarity, right? Which suggests that there there are definitely some boundary issues here. Is he loving? Is is the relationship between them sinless? As we're going to see when Lancelot gets more fully into the Grail quest. Um, whether they're sleeping together or not, their relationship is not, in fact, sinless, right? In his heart, at least, whether or not uh, it is sinless in their bodies yet uh, at this point. Um, anyway, uh, <coughs> this time, of course, as we saw, Sir Lancelot is not... Uh, uh, is not I, I, there's no potion involved, right? Uh, Dame Brucen again comes to Lancelot and says, "My lady, Gwen, my lady Queen Guinevere lieth and awaiteth upon you." And Lancelot says, "I am ready to go with you, whether ye will have me." Um, and then he. So now, the primary difference I think between these two incidents. 
from Lancelot's perspective, right? Think about it from Lancelot's perspective. Neither time, and again, we just have to accept the fact that he can't tell the difference in the dark. Um, in neither case, right, in neither uh, the, the first time or the second time he sleeps with Elaine, in neither case did he... Okay. Think about the difference. The first time, what he chooses to do, right, what he chooses to do is to go visit Guinevere. Then... His inhibitions are completely swept away, apparently, by what he drinks and he hops into bed with her. When he wakes up and still thinks it's Guinevere, right, before he opens the window and sees who it is that he was in bed with, right, he wakes up, he's upset in the morning, right? This second time, so the first time he, there, it, there's not clear evidence that he was planning, necessarily, to go to her bed, right, to sleep with her. This second time, he is clearly planning to sleep with her, right? In his heart, right here, Lancelot is sleeping with the queen, right? That's a change. And that seems to be a change, given how upset he was the first time, I think. Anyway, um, but Lancelot's willingness here, again, still, he ends up, you know, he's, he is definitely attempting to commit adultery with the queen. Here. Failing still, still technically innocent of adultery with the queen, but his innocence is getting more and more technical. You see, sort of the stages of that, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so it's um, it's it's assuming they don't routinely sleep together, which again, that's my reading of this. Um, his fidelity, the sinlessness of their relationship is more and more theoretical here, right? More and more of a technicality. Um, and there they are kissing and clipping as it was a kindly thing, as it is a natural thing. Um, why? Why does it change? Why does he change? Why is he willing to jump into her bed here? Or rather... Why would he be willing to jump into her bed here if he had not already been there before? Um, and one of my answers to that would be the the kind of pressure that their relationship was put under by his sleeping with Elaine and begetting Galahad the first time. This is very public, right? Galahad uh, has made this whole thing known. And you'll remember this came out in the court and Guinevere was upset, but she let him off because... He was bewitched, right? Yeah, there was sorcery involved. So he says, okay, she says, all right, it's not that big. But we can see, we can already see from the setup to this scene that Guinevere is worried, right? She is jealous of Lancelot and envious of Elaine, especially after she meets her. And she seems to doubt now. Okay, maybe I let him off too easy. Maybe it, this was, in fact, his idea, right? Maybe he wasn't just an innocent victim of sorcery that time. Maybe I need to prove this. And he seems to be wanting to prove it to her as well. Um, again, the, with the willingness, with the eagerness with which he goes along to the bed that he thinks, um, uh, that he thinks is hers, right? Um, but, of course, he ends up accidentally uh, <laughs> sleeping with the mother of his child again. Um, yeah, and I wonder, you know, Matthew, there is, there is sort of that 
issue too, right? Matthew says, hey, this sex thing is pretty great. Maybe I ought to do it more. Uh, you know, yeah, I, a threshold has been crossed, right? I mean, even though he didn't actually go to bed with her, like, he went to bed with somebody thinking it was the queen. Like, in his mind, he made that step already. Um, one of the things, again, this this is the primary reason that I choose, you know, and I, and I you know, went into this last time, how I think you can kind of choose. It's, it's Neither way is a totally satisfying reading of the text. The reason I choose to believe that the two of them are not sleeping together is it's a much more interesting story. And what we can see, if that's the case, what we can see is Mallory attempting a really interesting kind of psychological progression, psychological and spiritual progression on Lancelot's part, right? Not unlike in a totally different context, we have seen him dealing with some really interesting and subtle psychological and spiritual developments in the relationship between Palamides and Tristan and Isolde, right? We saw there, um, you know, Mallory working out some really complicated emotions and developments, right? And I think if we give him sort of that initial benefit of the doubt, if we, if we go into this willing to, to make uh, the to 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 proceed on the premise that Lancelot and Guinevere have not been sleeping together. What we find is a similar thing to what we see um, uh, with that that same kind of complexity. Different subject, obviously, but same kind of complexity. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And James, uh, it is really interesting that both times the relationship is prevented from being sinful because of the deception, and it's. It's that too makes it really complicated, doesn't it, James? I mean, on the one hand, Lancelot is being preserved repeatedly, right? Uh, he's being uh, so on the one hand, you could say he has been corrupted, right? That that first incident seems to have switched something in him, right? Made him more willing to do this. So you could say, well, that's a step down morally, right? But at the same time, he's been spared, and he's being spared. He's being saved from himself again. Um, uh, which, but again, but he is, as you say, James, it's happening by deceit, right? Um, and Elaine loves him and, you know, is is very happy to be with him and he's making her happy. Um, she's all kinds of willing, right, for this to happen again. Um, she loves him and is devoted to him. They're not married, right? But if you ask her, she appears to consider herself that way, right? Um Anyway, it's 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 a really comp. This moment here is a very complex, both spiritual and psychological moment. And then here's Guinevere, right? Here's Guinevere, now really upset because now her, that sort of second thoughts that she had about the first incident in retrospect, right now, seem to be completely confirmed. And now she's got a you know she's convinced he's just running and and doing this. Like he's in the next room, right? I mean, come on, right? That's really, really bad. Um, and think of this the situation, the moral and spiritual situation that that puts Guinevere in, right? As we see, Than Sir Launcelot had a condition that he used of custom to clatter in his sleep and to speak often of his lady, Queen Guinevere. So Sir Launcelot had a walked as long as it had pleased him. <clears throat> and so, by course of kind, he slept. <laughs> Mallory's being very 
courteous here. And so by course of kind, he slept and Domeline both. And in his sleep he talked, and clattered as a jay of the love that had been betwixt Queen Guinevere and him. And so as he talked so loud, the queen heard him, thereas she lie in her chamber. And when she heard him so clatter, she was wroth out of measure, and for anger and pine wist not what to do. And then she coughed so loud that Sir Launcelot awaked, and anon he knew her hemming, and then he knew well that he lie by the queen aline, and therewith he leapt out of his bed as he had been a woodman in his shirt, and anon the queen met him in the floor, and thus she sighed, Ah, thou false traitor knight! Look thou never abide in my court, and leakly that thou void my chamber, and not so hardy thou false traitor knight, that evermore thou come in my seat. Alas, sighed Sir Launcelot, and therewith he took such a heartily sorrow at her wordes, that he fell down to the floor in a soon, and therewithal Queen Guinevere departed. And when Sir Launcelot awoke out of his swoch, he leapt out at a bay window into a garden, and there with thornes he was all too cratchit of his visage and his body, and so he ran forth he knew not whither, and as wild wood as ever was man, and so he ran twa year, and never man had grass to know him. All right, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is an awesome scene. Right? I mean, this is absolutely fantastic. And first of all, um, yeah, but several people, uh, uh, Marie and Tarlonio, are both noticing that uh, uh, apparently the walls of this castle are like, you know, the walls of a cheap, really cheap motel. Um, but this doesn't actually surprise me, right? Not exactly soundproof. I can believe this. Um, yeah, thin walls this castle has indeed. But now... Um, one thing I wanted to point out just really briefly, um, I've been meaning to mention this for a while, but I, I've forgotten to say something about this probably a half dozen times already before. Um, at the very beginning of this class, I was talking about the audiobooks, right? Uh, and I've been reading along with the, uh, the, new, the Chris McDonald uh, recording uh, on Audible. Um, that sort of newer recording that was out that I said at the beginning seemed fine to me, which it did. But I don't know if you've noticed. If you're following along in the text and on the audiobook as well, this is edited. I'm shocked. Shocked by this. They take out all the, all the nudie bits. <laughs> like, seriously, every bedroom scene is excerpted out of this past. And they don't even mention, like, anything happens. This whole business, this whole paragraph of the clattering in his sleep is cut out. So, like, he goes to bed as is a kindly thing, and then, like, all of a sudden, we're getting all, oh, thou false traitor knight from Guinevere, right? And you don't even know what happened. I first noticed this when uh, we were uh, way back in the beginning of the tale of Sir Tristram, when he first went to bed with Sir Seguarides' wife, uh, and the entire bit about him getting into bed, having, like, his injury, right, and him cutting and getting blood all over the sheets, and then if you listen to the audiobook, it sounds like, you know, her husband comes in and finds the two of them at the dinner table when they're actually in bed, right? I was, um, I was appalled, appalled to discover that they've, excer and it's just tall, small excerpts. It's like to make it family friendly, I guess, uh, that they take out the, the racy bits. It's, it's just the sex scenes that they remove. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I've been, I've been, 
shocked, shocked to discover that. So, like, in retrospect, I want, now I'm committed, but in retrospect, I would want to, like, rescind my commendation of this recording. I think the other recording, the older recording, um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure they did not take out the, the, uh, the non-family-friendly bits, um, and Stephen, I agree. Like <laughs> Stephen says, because you expect a book called *The Death of Arthur* to be G-rated. I know, right? Um, no, ex- and exactly, Brian. Yes, uh, swapping off the heads of ladies, two thumbs up, right? But uh, uh, kip- uh, kissing and clipping us is a kindly thing. No way, man. Like we can't go there. I have. I just. I, I, my mind is completely blown by the fact that they made that particular choice. Um, but. Um, yeah, it is the expurgated version, James. Yeah, uh, it's this is this is this is the one without the gannet. That's exactly it. Um, anyway, I just I've been meaning to I, I, several times from that Tristram uh, moment and forward. There have been several other incidents, uh, and each time I'm like, oh, I got to rant about this briefly. But anyway, this is the scene that finally made me remember to rant. And it, because you miss the clattering in his sleep, Lancelot talking in his sleep and hearing uh, and Guinevere hearing him through the walls and her coughing. And that moment, right, when he he, he wakes up hearing her coughing and he recognizes her coughing. That's what hemming means. Hemming is coughing, right? He recognizes her cough through the wall and realizes, oh, this is not Guinevere's room. Oh, no, I'm in the wrong bedroom, right? And at that moment, just as he realizes he's in the wrong room, bam, Guinevere comes bursting in, right? And uh, uh, and, and accuses him. And he, he gets no word in edgewise other than alas, right? And then he swoons, right? And keels over. Um, anyway, yeah, um... So that this is a this is a a, a, a classic classic moment here, um, but um, she was already remember wallowing and waltering and she's like upset right she's awake because she's upset and she lying there awake in her emotional agony uh, and anger hears him through the walls and that's just an approving. Right, what she was already suspicious of. Um, by the way, one other minor point here. Look thou never abide in my court, and lightly that thou void my chamber. Right? Um, the, the reference to the chamber there, um, I wasn't thinking of this, but that actually goes along with what I was saying before. Void my chamber means your invitation to come visit me in my bedroom, right? Your your open invitation to come and, and be, you know, like in privacy, in, you know, the potentially morally dubious, con- you know, that your, your ticket uh, to my, uh, uh, to my private uh, uh, room, right, is rescinded, right? See that, you know, lightly void my chamber. Um, he's not in her chamber right now, right? So she's not talking, she's not telling him to get out the door right now, or the window, of course, as he ends up choosing. Um, It's not about that, right? This is like, for future reference, you are not welcome anymore in my chamber. Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, defenestration is one of my favorite words, too. Uh, Really awesome to get a chance to use it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, void. See, now void is interesting. So Veronica, on the one hand, it does mean avoid it, right? Like stay away from it. But void, of course, as we've seen, means like to flee from, right? Like you void the battlefield, um, as we were discussing way back uh, at the very beginning, right? Uh, when we first saw some of Arthur's enemies void, uh, when, uh, you know, Ban and Bors came out to attack them. So um, it means like retreat, get retreat, get out, run away from uh, as well. And so that, you know, that, that sense of like, not just avoid could just mean like go other places, but not that, you know, stay away from, um, like turn your back and run away from, right? Like this is, uh, this is a, a very active disinvitation, right? To her chamber. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, she is, <laughs> Brian, it is kind of like unfriending him and blocking his number. Uh, yes, I am taking you off my favorites list completely, right? Um, yeah, don't text me anymore. Um, Lancelot responds in classic fashion by running mad, right? Now, he's already mostly naked, uh, so he doesn't have to remove his clothes to run mad into the uh, into the forest. Um, but he uh, already runs out. And again, the, the details. Um, with Thorn as he was all so cratchit of his visage and his body. Um, it's hard not to contrast this with um, the uh, uh, the running mad of Tristram. Of course, remember, as I said... All the stuff that we saw Tristram and Isolde go through was kind of a setup, right? You know, it, it has sort of prepared us uh, for this, um, for Lancelot's and 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 Guinevere's stories. And when we come around to, um, when we come around to the uh, this sort of situation, right, to this crisis in Lancelot and Guinevere, I also said that the Tristram and his old story was going to kind of pay some dividends, right? That it's going to be preparing us to be thinking about some of these things. But when we see these parallels unfold in the Lancelot and Guinevere story, it's going to be stronger. It's going to be more powerful the second time. And I think we can certainly see that in Lancelot's running mad. Tristram didn't really have an awesome reason for running mad, right? That was his, like, false suspicion of... of uh, unfaithfulness from his ode, which is not even true. And we saw him kind of really gradually go mad. He seemed to make sort of a calculated decision to run mad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karina says that she's learning that all of her ill-fated romances could have been way more exciting. Yeah, it's true. We don't... Uh, uh, we don't, we don't really do it like this, uh, 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 anymore. And exactly, Sharon, you see, he's, uh, uh, Lancelot, of course, is breaking, uh, the young Jane Austen's, uh, uh, in, in, injunction to run mad as often as you wish, but never faint. He, he, he does both, right? First faint and then run mad, which I guess, you know, is all right. Um, but, and, but James Stevens, you're absolutely right. He is experiencing some serious unhap, right? His, alas, right? He's, the irony of the situation. Think of... Think of what exactly is crushing Lancelot's sanity right now. 
right? What is, what is it that's driving him out of his mind? Uh, first, his lady's accusation, right? Which he can't refute. He has been unfaithful to her. Again, he has wanted to, he didn't want to have a lover paramours in here. He's got one, right? He slept with this girl twice now, right? And, you know, once might be sorcery, twice is it, it begins to look like a lifestyle choice, right? And he knows that. Like, how can he, how can you possibly try to maintain your innocence? Now, the thing is, he is innocent. He knows that he's innocent, right? I mean, but like, baby, I thought it was you, right? Really just, he knows that won't work. But there's more than that, right? There's more than just the fact that he knows his intentions were innocent and yet knows that he can't prove it, knows that he is guilty. At the same time, I think we have this additional layer of things, right? Um, he... And James, you know, what your comment made me think of it talking about serious unhap. Remember Lancelot himself earlier saying at the beginning, um, you know, back at the beginning of his career in the book of Sir Lancelot, that what will happen if you let yourself get into a relationship par amours is that you, all, all unhap will come upon you. You'll end up killing people that you shouldn't kill. You know, you'll end, like, bad stuff is going to end up happening by unhap to you, Right. He is experiencing a great deal of unhap. And why? Why? What is the cause of the unhap? It's not Elaine's fault, right? I mean, I'm not saying she plays no role in this, but I'm saying the unhap isn't her fault, right? If he were bamboozled into the bed of this, you know, young, beautiful, perfectly willing and eligible bachelorette, right? I mean, it's like there are worse fates to befall knights than that, right? That, that, that wouldn't be anyone's example of like the most unhap that could possibly befall somebody. Elaine isn't really the problem here, right? Even though she is trying to entrap him and she is deceiving him and there's lots of reasons to find that morally questionable. Um, especially, of course, emphasized by the role of the sorceress Dame Brucin. However, he's experiencing unhappy because of his relationship with Guinevere, which even if they have not, again, according to my theory of choice, my reading of choice, they have not yet slept together, Lancelot and Guinevere, right? But he has wanted to. He has tried to now actively this second time, and it is that which created the unhap. Had he said no, right? Had he not let their relationship cross that boundary, he would not be in this situation where all he can say is, alas, because he chose it, right? He didn't choose exactly what happened, but he chose to put himself into this situation. If their relationship were sinless... The way that it could be, the way that it was, I think, probably, the way that uh, Percival still thinks it is, right? If they had the kind of sinless relationship that is, in fact, perfectly okay between the queen and, you know, the champion of the court, there wouldn't be this kind of jealousy, right? Guinevere wouldn't be doing this. It would be okay. The fact that it's not okay... The fact that she's upset, as upset as she is, shows, right? This isn't right. It's not 
right. It's not been right now for whether they're sleeping together or not. And again, it's that's one of the things that seems to me to be most pointedly dramatized here. The ex- the extent to which how messed up their relationship can get despite the fact that they're not actually sleeping together, right? None of these involve adultery in that sense and yet, right? And yet um all manner of unhap is breaking out on lay. He hasn't done the killing folks accidentally thing yet. Maybe that'll happen though. There's a chance that just might come up later on. Hasn't happened yet, but it could come to that if he's not careful and if he keeps going down this road. Well, let's see where his road takes him. We get incidents of him out being mad in the woods and doing good things, almost killing Sir Bruce on's pity, right? Uh, while he's uh, in his mad state. Um, but first, let's think about Guinevere here. Now turn we unto Queen Guinevere into the fire laddie Elaine, that one Damaline heard the queen so rebuke Sir Launcelot, and how also he sonned, and how he leapt out of the bay window. Then she sighed unto Queen Guinevere, Madam, ye are greatly to blame for Sir Launcelot, for now have ye lost him, for I saw and heard by his countenance that he is mad for ever. And therefore, alas, madam, ye have done great sin, and yourself great dishonour, for ye have a a lord royal of your own, and therefore it were your part for to love him. For there is no queen in this world that hath such another king as ye have, and if ye were not, I meek have gotten the love of my lord Sir Launcelot, and a great cow's I have to love him, for he had my maidenhood, and by him I have borne a fire son whose name is Sir Galahad, and he shall be in his time the best knight of the world. Well, Damelaine, said the queen, as soon as it be daylight. I charge you to avoid my court. And for the love ye owe unto Sir Launcelot, discover not his counsel, for an ye do, it will be his death. As for that, say Dameline, I dare under talk he is marred forever, and that have you mad. And neither ye nor I are like to rejoice him, for he mad the most piteous groanes when he leapt out at yonder by window, than ever I heard man mack. Alas, said Faraline, and alas, said the queen, for now I wot well that we have lost him forever. Okay. Um, yeah, it is just rude to have both the best king and the best knight. Uh, exactly, exactly. But no, it, remember that Lancelot's whole system of sexual morality essentially involved looking back past the whole courtly love game, which is so popular, right? This whole, like, the whole adultery game, uh, which is, seems to be completely accepted by everybody, right? Uh, pretty much everybody. I mean, even Sir Seguarides was pretty much okay with it eventually, right? Um, anyhow, Lancelot going backwards and saying, no, you know what? No. Uh, no paramours, right? No, you know, sleeping around with ladies, no adultery, no, um, be married or 
don't, right? And he says, I don't want to be married, so I'm going to not, right? That's, that was Lancelot's principle. Elaine, what she says might not sound revolutionary, right? But it is, and it is in the same way. Uh, again, I know from, a, you know, from, from many perspectives, what she's saying sounds pretty obvious, right? Like, hey, wait a second, you're like married and stuff, right? You should be faithful to your husband and not be jealous about Lancelot like you own him sexually too, because you totally don't, right? You're Arthur's wife. And again, that might seem really, really basic, but it's quite revolutionary. She's not playing the game, right? Um, Elaine, that is, is not playing the game. Um, And she is pointing out, not only is Guinevere married, right? She's very, very well married, right? King Arthur himself, you know, the center of the whole chivalric world is her husband. She has... No matter how you look at it, right, she has what should be enough. She should be content with what she has. That's the kind of talk that Lancelot had been talking before. Um, uh, Yeah. um, A bunch of you are feeling that Elaine is not taking sufficient responsibility for her own actions. I hear that. I hear that. Um, yes. Um, two things. One, that's not what's important right now, right? That is, when she's rebuking Guinevere, um, she... What's between her and Guinevere is Guinevere's sort of proprietary attitude to Lancelot, right? And Elaine is basically challenging her right to Lancelot. You don't have that right, Guinevere, right? Her argument for having it is based upon the fact that uh, how exactly does she phrase that? He had my maidenhood, right? Yes. True. Now, again, you can kind of bring that around and say yeah, but it's not like he took it, right? I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, she was the one who initiated that very strongly and indeed, uh, you know, bamboozled and ensorcered, ensorcelled him, right? So, anyway, um, yeah. The thing about Elaine's psychology throughout this, remember the fundamental fact of Elaine's life, right? Something totally accepted and embraced by both her and her father. Galahad needs to be begotten. That must happen. That's her job. Her job is to conceive 
Galahad of Lancelot, right? And both of them, both she and her father, are willing to pursue any means necessary in order to bring about this highly desirable event. I... This is one of those times. Elaine's actions and how we're supposed to feel about Elaine's actions. It's one of those moments in this text that I'm just really not sure about. That is, I'm not really sure how we're supposed to feel about that. Um, I mean, I feel along with, you know, many of you who are bringing this up, that she, her actions are pretty sketchy, right? And the whole, like, ends justify the means thing makes me super uncomfortable. And I can't help but feel that Galahad's conception and the whole Holy Grail project is kind of compromised at the beginning by these shenanigans, right? How can this kind of deception, this kind of, you know, rape assisted by sorcery and deception be the origin story of the perfect holy night? That's, I, 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 I can't help but feel that, you know, the career of Galahad has a kind of moral asterisk next to it under the circumstances, right? Given what's going on there. Um, but I am not sure, and again, there have been many examples of this that we've talked about along the way. I'm not 100% sure that I'm supposed to be feeling that way. Um, I don't see super clear evidence from Mallory that that's like the reaction the story expects us to have. I, I, I'm not sure that that might not just be me, or us, rather, right? Um, you know, a modern uh, take on this. Um, her statement is true. I mean, he did have her maidenhood. She kind of forced it on him. But uh, he, yes, had her maidenhood, and by him she's born a fair son. Um, you know, they've not undergone any ceremony, but, you know, they're, like, a little bit married, Right. Like one could make that argument. The argument could be made, uh, you know, that that they are a little bit or at least in her mind they are. Right. Um, and again, that's it's not they would not be without even legal backing potentially under some circumstances. So I don't know. Um, but Zach, I agree. Uh, uh, Zach is, of course, remembering Arthur's origin. And we were, of course, thinking about the parallels. Uh, between Elaine and Uther and the way that was gender reversed, but the same kind of sorcery and deception and thinking you're sleeping with somebody else. Um, uh, yeah. And Zach is saying, I, you know, he remembers being initially shocked way back at the beginning that that was the origin of the legendary Arthur. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly true. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So again, I'm not saying that, it's inappropriate for us to have these reactions and to, to, to kind of be dubious of Elaine and wanting to hold her responsible. I'm just, if you can find evidence in the text that places where the text seems to be prompting us in that direction, what kind of warrant from the text do we have, uh, for feeling, you know, that, that this story is, is intending us to think this way towards Elaine. Um, because here's the thing. As we move forward, Lancelot, the two women between whom Lancelot is caught now, 
um, increasingly it seems to me that the choice for Lancelot is between his sketchy relationship with the queen, which is getting sketchier, right? It's on a, it's on a, it's a, well, okay, if sketchiness is on, it's increasing sketchiness on the y-axis, it's going up, right? Um, but uh, anyway, the sketchiness is on the rise in his relationship with Guinevere. And the relationship with Elaine is something like um, purity, right? Um, that is, there's this beautiful young woman who loves him, whose maidenhead he had, who has borne his only child, uh, and who is ready to accept him and embrace. They could he could settle down with her, be married, um, and that would be okay, right? It would be turning away from the, you know, the relationship with Guinevere, whose sketchiness is on the rise. Um, it would make retroactively the other transactions with Elaine fine, in a sense, right? And I, whether or not you're comfortable about her entrapment of him in the first place, nevertheless, um, the choice that he's making seems increasingly between those two options, right? Remember, he was like, either get married, there's, there's getting married and there's loving paramours. And remember before, he was like, I choose neither, right? I choose the third path to just be on my own and, and uh, you know, to be uh, sort of sexually pure, right? That was his choice before. It's not an option now, right? Um, he's begotten a child. Sexual purity uh, is good. He's... Whether he was before or not, he's no longer a virgin. And remember the significance we talked about before. He's lost that, right? That sexual purity that he had, he doesn't have anymore. So now what's he going to choose, right? Where's he going to go now? Um, and again, I can't help but feel that the story presents Elaine not as, you know the choice for him to hook up with that sketchy woman who, you know, seduced him away from the path and uh, bereft him of his will and robbed him of his virginity. Again, I'm not saying that that's an inappropriate reading. You can totally read Elaine that way. There's a strong argument to be made, but I don't feel like the text makes it. You see what I mean? Um, Brian, yes, Guinevere would have an, a, a basis to object to Lancelot wanting to marry Elaine. Remember again, Tristram and Isolde, right? Isolde of the Blanchemans here serves as our exemplar, right? Remember Lancelot and Guinevere, both of them were like, oh, that was horrible. When he went off and got married, you know, Tristram was in the black books for a while. And Guinevere was like, oh, don't worry, she probably, you know, uh, 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 seduced him by sorcery, says Guinevere in a prescient moment, right? Um, but, Carita, you're absolutely right. What we end up having here is a mess. Lancelot tried to commit adultery. The queen tried to commit adultery. Um, Elaine is a very nice girl who also raped someone. Yes, the whole thing is a complete mess. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Complete mess. Um, And that, to me, one of the things... The queen tried to commit adultery. 
that's another thing that I definitely want to um, uh, not lose sight of here, right? In Elaine's rebuke, whether or not you're comfortable with, you know, Elaine's sense of her own role here. This is the first time we have seen anybody approaching Guinevere, right? Rebuking Guinevere. We've seen attempts to frame her. We've seen attempts to expose her, to slander her. Um, We've never seen anybody stand to her face and say, this is not right. You shouldn't be doing this. And look at what you've done, right? If you need evidence that the way that you are acting towards Lancelot, that your attitude towards Lancelot isn't right, look out the bay window, right? Look at the path, the bloody path through the thorns that he just left, right? You have wrecked him. You have wrecked him. And not just by her words now, not just by her rebuke, right? By the whole love, the way you have allowed this love relationship to grow, the direction in which it has grown, right? Um, You've wrecked it. Because remember, according to the, you know, by the reading in which they have not been sleeping together, Guinevere made a choice here, right? She has summoned him to her bed to sleep with her. Guinevere, this very night, has crossed a line. And Elaine says, and look at what you've done by doing that, right? There goes one of the consequences of your crossing that line, of drawing him to cross that line. The two of you have now seriously messed this up. And it didn't have to be that way, right? He could have just married me and settled down, she says. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Karita says, I think the moral I'm coming away with is that if Lancelot made better choices, you could have a story where he and Elaine would have been a great couple. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's possible. I think we we do see that. I do think that the story gives that as a possibility, right? There could have been a happy ending. And honestly, it's one of the only happy endings that we can see. Galahad does need to get conceived, right? That's that's a good thing. Um, uh, But, um, uh, yeah, that's a good thing. Um, And if that had to happen, right, him settling down and marrying Elaine... It could be worse than that, right? That's certainly a better outcome. And if that happens, the worst stuff that's going to come wouldn't have happened. So certainly, in retrospect, it starts to look more and more attractive. All right. So I'm going to skip the incidents where he's running mad, as much fun as those are. Uh, and let's get to his healing. Than the king, so this is King Peles, of course, because he wanders on until King Peles and, and Elaine find him. Right, and Elaine finds him and recognizes him. Right, unlike La Belle Zode, who didn't recognize Tristram at first until her dog recognized him. Uh, anyway, Than the king called unto him such as he most trusted, a four personas, and Damaline his doctor, and Dam Brusen her servant. And when they come to the well and beheld Sir Launcelot, and on Dam Brusen sighed to the king, "We must be wise how we deal with him." For this Knecht is out of his mind, and if we awak him rudely, what will he do? We all know not. And therefore abide ye a while, and I shall throw an enchantment upon him, that he shall not awake of an hour. And so she did. And found the king commanded that all people should avoid, that none should be in that way, whereas the king would come. 
And so when this was done, these four men and these laddies laid hand on Sir Launcelot, and so they bar him into a tower, and so into a chamber, where was the holy vessel of the Sancreal. And before that holy vessel Sir Launcelot was lied. And there come an holy man, and unhealed that vessel. And so by miracle, and by virtue of the holy vessel, Sir Launcelot was healed, and recovered. Launcelot is recovered from his madness miraculously by the Holy Grail. So remember when Elaine said in her rebuke, right, um, not only I wot well that ye have lost, we have lost him forever, um, but uh, that she knows, where is she? Oh yes, right. I saw and heard by his countenance that he is mad forever, right? Um, that seems to be not necessarily an exaggeration on her part, right? His healing... His madness doesn't just wear off, like Tristram's does, right? Um, he, uh, he's, he's, he's cured by the Grail. And if he had not been cured by the Grail, he would presumably have remained mad. Um, yeah, <laughs> Stephen says, whatever we think about Elaine's culpability, she seems smarter and more observant than the vast majority of other characters in this book. I agree. I agree. Um... And that's an interesting parallel, David. Uh, David Erbach says that Dame Brucen seems like the Merlin of this court. In some ways, he's not as involved in telling the future. She's not as involved as in telling the future, though that's hardly necessary, as everybody already knows the future in this court, apparently. Um, but that would be an interesting, uh, an interesting contrast, actually, if you think about those figures, those enchanters in an advisory role who help to organize events and make sure what is supposed to happen happens, right? Merlin is the first and primary of those, but not the last, right? Dame Brucen is a good example of that. Um, uh, Brangwain, the, you know, uh, 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 La Belle Zode's handmaiden, right? Um, definitely in that category as well. Lynette, remember, back from the book of Sir Gareth, um, you know, the one who, who sends... <laughs> like knights to uh to to attack them when they're trying to commit fornication uh, and then reassembles the knights after after Gareth chops them into pieces anyway yeah so we we have several of these uh these these people um yeah yeah um but Stephen yes it does re- require a legitimate miracle to cure him Gerald is asking if Lancelot's recovery is ultimately a good thing well I mean, you could say, in retrospect, maybe it would have been better had Lancelot remained mad for the rest of his life, but but the important thing is being given a, another chance, right? Um, Lancelot is being healed, and when he is healed, by being healed, he's given a choice, right? What's he going to do now? How is he going to live out the rest of his life here, Right? And the fact that this happens in the presence of the Holy Grail is very significant. As we will see, Lancelot in the presence of the Holy Grail is going to become a thing later on, right? Um, And the state of Lancelot's heart and whether or not, to what extent Lancelot is going to be permitted into the presence of the Holy Grail is going to be a thing as we move forward. Um, So... The fact that it's the Holy Grail that heals him, it's not just that it's a miraculous cure-all thing, right? I mean, it is, don't get me wrong, it's one of the things that it does, but it's not just that, right? Um, 
best that we not let ourselves begin to think about the Holy Grail as if it were some kind of legendary artifact in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Which has certain properties, uh, you know, can heal people completely a number of times a day, you know, and all that kind of thing. That's not what the Holy Grail is. The Holy Grail is very, very far from that, right? The Holy Grail is a, an entire spiritual force. Um, and the fact that the Holy Grail heals Sir Lancelot shows there's something for Sir Lancelot to do, right? He's being given an opportunity, and what he does with that opportunity, well, that's that's up to him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Karita, magicians who are... I, I would... I would uh, Karita said... Magicians in the business of making sure people get pregnant. It is true that Dame Bruce and Merlin are both in that, but if you add Lynette in, you could say magicians who are in the business of supervising <laughs> in different ways, right, uh, the sex lives of, uh, you know, the people with whom they're associated. That uh, That's an even broader category that fits uh, a bunch of things. Um yeah. Okay, good. And uh, no, James, he's not Lancelot the White now. Uh, no, no, he's not. But he, there is a sense, James, in which he does have a blank slate here, right? Um, in the pressure of, like, being there in the room with Elaine and Guinevere and, and being trapped in the pressure of the sin that he committed, the sin that he thought he was committing but didn't commit, right? The innocence of the one way but the lack of innocence in the other ways, right? And he just broke, right? Now he's isolated, right? And where is he isolated? In the court of King Peles, right? Where the Holy Grail lives, where Elaine is from. Um, he's in that world now, which is very different, which is very separated, which has an almost fairy-like separation, from the court of uh, of King Arthur, right? And he's very far from Guinevere here, as he is ready to try to put um, his uh, uh, his life uh, back together here. Um, and so Sir Launcelot lie more than a fortin nicht, or ever that he meeked steer for soreness, and than upon a die he sighed unto Damaline these waters. Fire Ladia Line, for your sake I have had much care and anguish, and it needeth not to rehearse it, ye know how. Notwithstanding, I know well I have done foul to you, one that I drew my swear to you to have slain you upon the morn after one that I had line with you. And all was for the cows that ye and Dam Brusen mad for me to lie be you magre mine head. And as ye say, Sir Galahad, your son, was begotten. That is truth, said Dameline. Then wall ye for my sack, said Sir Launcelot. Go ye unto your father, and get me a place of him wherein I may dwell, for in the court of King Arthur my I never come. Sir, said Dameline, I will live and die with you, only for your sack, and if my life make not a value, and my death make a value. Wit you well, I would die for your sack. And I wall to my father, and I am right sure there is nothing that I can desire of him, but I shall have it. And where ye be, my lord Sir Launcelot, doubt ye not, but I will be with you, 
with all the service that I do. Now, notice they acknowledge the issue, right, with Elaine. And he doesn't use exactly the... uh, um, doesn't use exactly the terms that we use, right? Um, I mean, he doesn't talk about rape, but he does say, made for me to lie by you, mogger my head, right? That's, that's pretty close. That's actually very similar language that is used when a man rapes a woman. Um, uh, mogger my head is a big deal there, right? Against my will, right? Uh, uh, you made me to lie by you against my will. Um, and as ye say, Sir Galahad, your son, was begotten. Now, Lancelot speaks as if they both have something to apologize for, right? You did ill to me in making me lay by you against my will. Um, I did ill to you by drawing my sword on you in the morning. He feels bad about that, right? He feels bad that he drew his sword and threatened to kill her that morning. Um, I'm not saying that was a good thing. It's hard to see that the two things are exactly equal, except Lancelot has really high standards, right? Um, I mean, Gawain can decapitate ladies at will and not feel very much guilt about it, if Lancelot draws his sword in anger at a woman, he's acting almost as if he had committed the act, right? Uh, we were talking about him committing adultery in his heart before, right? He committed murder in his heart here, and that seems to be what, essentially, what he's accusing himself of, right? Um, yeah. Ooh, Devorah, that's a really great point. Devorah says, is it significant that he calls Sir Galahad your son rather than my son or our son? Um, Devorah, yeah, I tend to think that is significant here. Um, Because, Devorah, I would add not only the pronoun, but the voice of the verb, right? Um, Begetting, that's the transitive verb for the boy's role, right? Men beget, women conceive, right? So, when you're talking about begetting, you're talking about the part of baby-making that the man does, right? And so when he uses that verb, begotten, in the passive voice, Galahad, your son, was begotten. Right? As you say, Galahad, your son, was begotten. He is removing himself as the agent of the action. Right? Begetting occurred. Right? Begetting totally occurred, but he didn't do the begetting. Right? He didn't choose it. It was done against his will. So when you combine those two things, Devorah, right? your son, who was begotten, you know, and it wasn't my fault that he was begotten, right? Um, I think that it, just like mistakes were made. Right, yes, he is... He is uh, um, emphasizing his own lack of agency in the beginning of Galahad there. So, Devorah, I do think you are right to read some distance between him 
and her, but also between him and Galahad here. And Devorah, we should, of course, remember this when he meets the 15-year-old Galahad, the miraculously 15-year-old Galahad um, later on, right? Um, Because he's going to change his mind about Galahad. He's going to close that distance um, between him and Galahad. But right now, yes, he's still uh, clearly on that. Now, but again, he, he forgives her, right? He reconciles with her. Um, he's going to stay here. So again, as I was saying before with those two options, right? Settle down and get married or love paramours or that third option, right? Um, you know, walking the line and avoiding the both of them. He can't do that anymore. He's not even going to go into Arthur's court, right? He can't do that. Why? Because he's guilty, feels guilty about what happened. I mean, if you think about it, this is, again, it's like you can feel the madness coming on again, right? Feel the compound guilt. The poor guy is guilty towards King Arthur because he fully intended to sleep with the queen, right? Innocent by technicality, but he really meant to commit that sin. So he can't go and look Arthur in the face anymore, like he used to be able to do, right? But at the same time, he was unfaithful to, in the act of attempting to commit adultery uh, and break Arthur's marriage, he instead accidentally cheated on Guinevere, right? Um, and so he's not been, he has failed to be either a virtuous lover of, of uh, a Guinevere or a good paramour of Guinevere, Right? He's failed on both counts um, and can't go back. Um, So he's choosing to stay here. Stephen, there's no reference to any wedding ceremony, right? He's not marrying Elaine, but he's moving in, right? I mean, he's going to stay in in her father's court. He asks for King Pelas to give him a place to be. He's moving into her world, at the least. And she, in her final speech there, makes very clear, I'm very willing that this should happen, right? If you choose to stay with, uh, with us, if you choose to stay with me, I am your wife, right? Um, I am going to, you know, she does a whole, for better or for worse, right, till death do do me part from you thing there. One-sidedly, she doesn't ask it of him, right? She just proclaims her own devotion to him. Um, Yeah, so what is the moral status? I mean, Stephen, I agree. It sounds, I mean, like technically, like she's offering herself to him as a concubine. Um, They seem to be just kind of living together and not marrying um, to what extent is that itself morally sketchy? I don't think that it does have the purity. Again, there's that, there is that, there is that pure option, right? There is that scenario in which Lancelot just married Elaine from the get-go, right? And they conceived Galahad in a happy nuclear family, and uh, and everything was great and fine. Everything's not going to be great and fine. Um, and that is her fault. That paragraph does point the finger at her really clearly, right? That can happen now. Um, but if what's happening is not 
perfectly legit, right? As if they are just getting married and settling down and living a moral life, a chaste life together. Um, it's This still kind of looks like the better option, actually, than him going back and picking up where he left off with Guinevere. Um, absolutely. Um, yes. And Bruce, you're right to the, you know, Bruce is saying that the, 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 the reference to the beginning of the sun, uh, sounds a little Jesus-y. Yeah, it does. Now, of course, in part, that's, you know, the word begotten is certainly not unique. I mean, it's important in the creeds and everything. You're absolutely right about that. And, uh, and in John three, no question, but, um, of course, the word begotten is a fairly common word, which was often used of lots of people in addition to Jesus back in the old days. But uh, let's just say if you want to associate Galahad with Jesus, you'll have all kinds of reasons to do that. Right. Uh, um, I said, I don't think uh, like people necessarily, you know, in the 15th century would perk up their ears when they talk here about hear the word begotten and be immediately thinking about John chapter three. Um, cause it was a much more common word, but, but you're not wrong. Let me just say you're not wrong. Um, uh, yeah, whether or not it's needlessly messianic, Stephen, you know, you can decide on your own, but it's sure going to get powerful messianic around here before too long. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Marie, I think you're right. Uh, her speech is reminiscent of how knights pledge themselves uh, to a lady. It's, it is an interesting kind of reversal, right? Just as we had this sort of rape slash seduction, you know, this reverse rape there that was happening. So we do have this sort of reverse declaration. She's, she devotes herself to his service. Now, again, let me emphasize that's totally backwards, Right. The courtly love thing is that you, the man, pledge yourself to serve the woman. She is the boss. Right. That's how courtly love works. Um, she is in charge and has the power in that relationship. The submission of Elaine here is countercultural. A- another countercultural thing about Elaine. All right. When Lancelot settles down in his new life... He adopts a new name. He's leaving his old name behind. Then Sir Launcelot pardoned him. Uh, that is this other uh, knight. And so King Pelles, with twenty Kniktes and Dameline with her twenty ladies, rode unto the castle of Bliaunt, that stood in an island, beclosed in Viron, with a fire water deep and large. And when they were there, Sir Launcelot let call it Joyous Isle. And there was he called none otherwise but le chevalier Maffet, the knight that hath trespassed. Found Sir Launcelot let mock him a shield all of sable, and a queen crowned in the midst of silver, and a knight clean-armed kneeling afore her, and every day honest, for any mirthes that the laddies meeked mock of him, he would honest every day look toward the realm of Logris, where King Arthur and Queen Guinevere was, and then would he fall upon a weeping as his heart should to brast. All right. Talking about complex emotional situations, right? Emotional and psychological situations. Lancelot sets himself up with Dame Elaine, right? 
at a castle of King Pelis called, which he names, the Joyous Isle, right? Notice the isolation of this, right? The, the fact that this is separated from the court of Logris uh, by at least a geographic boundary, if not a kind of fuzzy fairy boundary as well, as we've talked about a little bit. But anyway, um, this is emphasized by the fact that this castle is on an island in the middle of a lake, right? Um, if it reminds you of the castle in the middle of the lake at the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there's probably a reason for that. But anyway, um, he calls it the Joyous Isle, right? But once every day, once every day, he looks back towards Logris and falls to weeping as if his heart should break. So many questions. So many things to emphasize, right? Point of emphasis. One. Weeping. What's he weeping for? What's he weeping for? Weeping because he misses her? Weeping because he's sorry for what he did? For Arthur, as well as for Guinevere? Right? Is that what he's weeping? Weeping for his separation from Arthur. Right? From his exile, from the life that he had built for himself, which he was had been quite enjoying, right, uh, as the paragon of chivalry. Um, guilt, longing, all these things together are what he's weeping for. Second point of, en- of emphasis, onus every day, right? You can emphasize the every day, but you can also emphasize the once, right? He has 23 happy hours a day and one sad hour. Right? He can't help himself every day. He looks over at Logris and weeps. But he doesn't weep all day every day. He's living in the joyous isle. Right? Um, his shield. He wears a black shield. He carries a black shield now. Right? A sable shield. And there's a silver queen crowned in the midst of it. And an, a knight kneeling before her. Is this a sign of his unrepentant love for Guinevere? Is this a sign of his penitence, in fact? Is the knight on his shield kneeling in asking forgiveness of the queen? Right? And then, of course, there's the... um, There's the... The queen is Guinevere. Right, But I bet you when Elaine looks at that shield, there might be an hour a day, maybe, when she can convince herself that she's the one that he's kneeling to there, now, that they're living together in the happy isle, right, in the joyous isle. Um, Stephen is wondering, is he reminding himself how his knightly love should have worked sinlessly? Yeah, Stephen, and of course, I can't help but remember... Um, Morgan Le Fay's shield, right? Remember the one she gave to Tristram that was designed to be an indictment of Lancelot and Guinevere, which you'll remember had the king and queen uh, with the knight standing on them, right? Um, uh, We see a very different configuration here, and Stephen, it is. If Morgan Le Fay's was a sort of a warped exaggeration of the sinful, the you know, sinful development of the relationship of Lancelot and Guinevere, this shield is potentially an image of that 
relationship as it should have been, as it could have been. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and Bruce, if it reminds you of the silver chair, Prince Rillian once a day remembering Narnia. Yeah, yeah, while well, he's dressed in black armor and wearing a black shield. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, when you find parallels between Mallory, something in Mallory, and something that C.S. Lewis wrote, you're almost never wrong, right? I mean, he loved, Lewis loved this book, read it a lot, and thought about it a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay, um... All right, so let's see. As I say, so many... Oh, yeah, thank you, Devor. I almost left without talking about his new name. Le Chevalier Marfette, the knight that has, trespass- that has trespassed. What has trespassed? Right, what trespass is he talking about? He's identifying... He lay- leaves his name behind, right? Um... He he calls himself the sinner knight, right? I am the knight who is a sinner. I am the knight who has done wrong. How? How has he done wrong? See, the sin that he confessed to Elaine during their reconciliation was drawing his sword on her, right? That's what apparently the only thing that he suggests that he has to repent of in his relationship with Elaine, Right? I don't think committing murder in his heart, not trying to say it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, Lancelot has high moral standards, but that's okay, right? He's not wrong, but I don't think that's a name changer, you know? He didn't kill her, in fact, right? Um, uh, So, yeah, I think, uh, especially, Devorah, when we think about back to, you know, Stephen's suggestion about the shield, right? The fact that the shield that he bears... So this is his coat of arms now. This is his identity, what is on that shield. Um, If his identity is reconciliation with the queen, seeking the forgiveness of the queen, showing what their relationship could or should be like, right? Could have been like, should have been like. And... All of these things are associated with his new name, Le Chevalier Maffette. I think it's that trespass that he's thinking of, right? Um, I think that he has trespassed on... He, he crossed a line. Not physically. He's been spared that. But he... he again, you want to talk about committing sins in his heart, right? He went a lot further with that one than he did with the decapitation, right? It's not like he decapitated somebody else intending it to be Elaine, right? And only by accident didn't in fact kill her, right? That's not the situation there. Um, He crossed the line, absolutely crossed the line morally in his relationship with Guinevere. He allowed their relationship to become what Morgan Le Fay and King Mark had always accused them of being, right? Um, his shield here is showing how he acknowledges that Morgan Le Fay's shield is now retroactively correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
Yes. Um, and yeah, Devorah, there are that name gets turned in other ways, right? T.H. White does interesting things with Le Chevalier Malfet. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, David, the business about committing adultery in his heart, um, the relevance of that to Maori's view of chivalric romance is that it's only Lancelot who cares, right? I mean, it's not about adultery in your heart. It's about literal adultery, right? I mean, look at Tristram. Tristram is your example, right? Um, I, yeah, Tristram doesn't commit adultery in his heart. Uh, Tr- Tristram uh, commits adultery. And even, like, Palamides, who never commits the sin of adultery with La Belle Isode, doesn't mean he didn't want to, right? I mean that that was that that was his plan A. If that, but it didn't pan out, right? Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, it's um, in a sense f- the reason this is a big deal for Lancelot is because his moral standards are so much higher to begin with, right? Um, and again, as I sort of as I promised at the beginning, remember the be- beginning of our discussions of Lancelot when I said how we're gonna we're gonna see him struggle. Um, we're going to see him really attempting to live up to the to the high moral standards, but we're going to see him fail and deal with that failure. That's what we're seeing here, right? He hasn't killed anybody. He hasn't committed adultery, but he's uh, hard on himself like he has both done both things, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so Stephen, I do think I do agree that we see if nobody else does, Lancelot certainly uh, takes uh, the 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 teachings there from the Sermon on the Mount pretty pretty seriously. All right. Oop. So, um, on the one hand, Lancelot changes his name, but he's not exactly hiding, right? Inviting five hundred knights to your Joyous Isle in order to have a big tournament is not a great way to keep your identity. It's, it's, um, you know, if he's trying to remain unknown and never get discovered, he's doing it wrong, right? Um, which is, I, I think, by itself, he initiated that. Um, nobody else, you know, there was no chance thing which betrayed his secrecy. Um, he seemed to invite, I was saying he seemed to invite discovery. He literally invited discovery, invited all 500 guys uh, to his court and had a big feast for them afterwards. Um, And people started talking. I don't think he wanted to remain unknown. I don't think the name is just about anonymity. I think it's about him kind of wrestling with his identity here, right? And now he goes back to the court. Or rather, Sir Percival and Sir Ector are going back to the court after having finally discovered him. Remember, Sir Ector is his brother. Uh, and Sir Percival is the awesome, innocent kid. So anon they departed, and within fifteen days' journey they come unto Camelot, that is, an English called Winchester. And when Sir Launcelot was come among them, the king and all the Canictus made great joy of his homecoming. And there Sir Percival and Sir Ector de Maris began and told the whole adventures— 
how Sir Lancelot had been out of his mind in the time of his absence, and how he called himself Le Chevalier, Le Chevalier Maffet, the canique that had trespassed. And in three days, within joyous isle, Sir Launcelot smote down five hundred canictes. And ever as Sir Ector and Sir Percival told these talents of Sir Launcelot, Queen Guinevere wept as she should have died. Than the queen mod him great cheer. Here comes the awkward moment. Ah, Jesu, said King Arthur, I marvel for what cows ye, Sir Launcelot, went out of your mind. For I and many other deem it was for the love of Fire Elaine, the doctor of King Pellis, by whom ye are noised that ye have gotten a child, and his name is Galahad, and men sigh that he shall do many marvellous thingus. My lord, said Sir Launcelot, if I did any folly, I have that I sought. And therewithal the king spake no more. But all Sir Launcelot's kinsmen knew for whom he went out of his mind. And thon there was mad great feastes, and great joy was there among them. And all lordes and laddies mad great joy when they heard how Sir Launcelot was come again unto the court. Remember, in the time of the searching for Sir Launcelot, while he's mad, we see a private discussion happening between Sir Bors and uh, Guinevere, right? In the absence of Launcelot, Sir Bors appears to be the, the senior member of the, you know, the French crew, right, of Sir Launcelot's knights, um, Sir, of Sir Launcelot's kinsmen, that is. Um... And they are in his confidence. And you'll rem you may remember, I'm pretty sure, that that conversation between Bors and Guinevere happened in her chamber. Right? Again, there's that, like, come behind the curtain of, you know, into my private space. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, like, I, I will permit you to do that. Again, it's not just Lancelot, um, which, again, is another one of those things that leads me not to just being doing the wink-wink, nudge-nudge thing when we uh, see him being invited or going to her chamber. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, this is super uncomfortable, right? This is the first time we have had a tense moment with Arthur, Right? I marvel for what cause ye, Lancelot, went out of your mind. Um, I and many other deem it was for the love of fair Elaine. So that you loved Elaine because she's really beautiful, I've heard, and she's having your kid and stuff. So, you know, so yeah, there's this... So the love of her drove you insane, right? That is both a very logical and a very illogical theory. Right. Logical in the sense that, hey, it happens. Right. You know, knights fall in love, go insane. It's part of the thing. Right. But it's also very illogical because there is no rumor. Right. That I mean. Falling in love with a beautiful and willing young damsel is not normally what leads to insanity. Right. There needs to be some kind of. Uh, uh, some kind of check to the process of true love in order to bring about the traditional insanity. So, um, exactly, Stephen. It would make sense if not for the fact that Elaine was quite publicly crazy about Lancelot. So, um, but again, it's not a horrible theory, right? Because they don't know everything that happened, right? So, 
maybe something, you know, went bad. Maybe she turned him away and so he went crazy. Like, could happen. Very plausible in its way. Lancelot's answer. If I did any folly, I have that I sought. If I did any folly... So, what does that mean? If I did any folly... I got what I deserved would be one way I would read that, right? Um, but first of all, wait a second. Why is he talking about doing folly? Arthur's just given him a pretty easy out, which doesn't necessarily involve folly on his part, unless falling in love with, you know, Fair Elaine is foolish, right? Um, he could just be like, oh, ha, yeah. He he, um, yeah, Elaine. It was all about Elaine, really, right? I mean, he could think of an indirect way to confirm that rumor without even lying, right? Because um, Elaine was indeed heavily involved in his running mad, right? But he volunteers the idea that he did wrong, that he that his own culpability. His own foolishness was involved in his madness. He won't specify what it was, right? He's speaking deliberately, cryptically. Cryptically in a way which seems to me and seems apparently to Arthur to suggest, I don't want to talk about this, right? Um, It's handled, right? If I did any folly, I have what I sought. So that means I got what I deserved, but it also suggests I'm in a good place now. Right? If I did any folly, past tense, I have that which I sought. Present tense. So um, I'm, I'm better. Right? I've, I've, I've righted my moral ship now. And I'm good moving forward. Um... Yeah. Yeah, see, but Brian, I don't think when he says if I did any folly, he can only be referring to his madness, which of course could be, I mean, folly would be a, a very understated way of characterizing his own madness, right? The word that convinces me that that's not what he's referring to is the word if, right? I mean, uh, his running mad is like a matter of public record, right? I mean, there's no if involved in that. Um so that would that seems would see it seems to me a little bit odd, right? Um, I think from this, I take it that Lancelot thinks he's better, right? That he is well, going to live out what's on the shield now, right? He is um, Lancelot has repented. He has benefited from his time in the Joyous Isle, and now he does return to Arthur's court, and he's going to do better. I think that's his intention. Um, And I think Arthur is very wise not to push him here. Okay. Oop, yep, 
Okay, so let's talk for uh, uh, for a few minutes about. So let's go back and do some Holy Grail stuff. See, here's me separating out. There's the end of our love triangle discussion. Uh, let's look at the ways in which we're introduced to the Holy Grail during again this last section, the Lancelot and Elaine section, and then we'll transition into the actual quest for the Sancreal. Um, notice, so this is Sir Bors when he visits King Pelas, and of course this is when uh, young Galahad uh, is discovered. Sir, said Sir Bors then unto King Pelles, this castle may be named the Castle Adventurous, for here be many strong adventures. <laughs> yeah, remember Sir Bors has an adventurous evening, right, in this castle. That is soth, sighed the king, for well may this place be called the Adventurous Place, for there come but few knictes here that goeth away with any worship. Be he never so strong, here he may be private. And but lot ago, Sir Gawain, the good knicht, got little worship here, for I lot you wit, said King Pelles. Here shall no knicht win worship, but if he be of worship himself and of good living, and that loveth God and dreadeth God, and else he getteth no worship here, be he never so hardy a man. That is a wonder thing, sighed Sir Bors. What ye mean in this country, for ye have many strowned adventures, and therefore will I lie in this castle, this knicked. Sir, ye shall not do so, said King Pelles. Be my counsel, for it is hard and ye escape without a sham. Sir, I shall talk that adventure that will fall, sighed Sir Bors. Then I counsel you, said the king, to be clean confessed. As for that, said Sir Bors, I will be shriven with a good will. So Sir Bors confessed. And for all women, Sir Bors was a virgin, south for on. That was the doctor of King Brandegoris. And on her, he got a child which heeked a line. And south for her, Sir Bors was a clean maiden. Okay, Sir Bors, the not quite so virginal as Sir Cowhat. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um,. I love Sir Bor's almost virginity. Uh, but anyway, we'll come back to that much more later on. The really important thing here is the wonder thing that King Pelles is explaining. Um, and this is a really, really big deal. What has mattered before? What has the whole ranking system been based on? Right? What does the phrase good knight mean? Right? But he he is a good he is a good knight he is a passing good knight. How many times have we seen people say that right over the course of this book? And when they have, it means almost exclusively means physical prowess. Right, Sir Gawain is a murderer, but he's a good knight. Right, that is he's pretty good at what he does. Right. Um, Oh, yeah, Devor, make sure I don't forget to answer that question. I'm going to come back to that, but don't let me leave that behind. Um, yeah, so goodness, right? Goodness as a knight just means ability to knock people off their horse with a lance and carve them up into pieces with a sword, right? That's what goodness has meant. King Pelles is establishing a new standard which Sir Bors finds a wonder thing, Right? Um, and Ellis he getteth no worship here, be he never so hardy a man. Right? It's not just hardiness. Hardiness was enough before. Hardiness was um, uh, was the standard. 
hardiness is not enough anymore. What do you have to have? Uh, you have to be of worship. Still your, still, your reputation matters, right? But you also have to be of good living. Your moral status matters. And what's more? And that loveth God and dreadeth God. The fear of God and the devotion to God matter, right? Your religious life matters. We've not seen that very often, right? Um, that certainly has not been a qualification for the leaderboard to this point in the story, right? Um, Sir Gawain, he's our classic example. He's like a test case. Sir Gawain is a good knight by the old standards, right? Not the best, but, you know, top 10, top 15 at least, right? He's a good knight. He's an effective knight. But he's not a knight of good living at all, right? He cannot measure up at all to these standards. And so Sir Gawain got little worship, uh, says King Pelles, with understatement here, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, Devorah is asking about uh, why is he being shriven? Um, is it because he thinks he'll die or something? There are two very important. This is this is these are these are both super important, and this will come up a lot in the Grail Quest. There are two reasons why you should get shriven urgently. Okay, um, death is certainly one. You want to confess and receive absolution prior to death. That's important. Um, but that's not the only situation. There is another thing that you don't want to do with your sins still on your heart without being confessed and without receiving absolution for those sins. And that is, Bruce, you've got it before you take communion. Super important. You must be clean confessed before you partake of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Which, remember, Holy Grail, right? Super relevant to this. Um, so, when King Peles advises Sir Bors, um, I counsel you to be clean confessed. That is in itself almost... A kind of test, right? Um, on the one hand, yeah, it's certainly prudent in the sense of like, okay, you're going to enter into some dangerous adventures here. You might die, so you'd be best advised to shrive yourself first, right? That's or to get shriven first. You can't shrive your own self. Um, uh, that's certainly prudent advice, which Bors prudently takes. And if he refused it, if he was like, nah, I'm good, whatever, I don't need to be shriven, that would be overconfidence. Right, um, but it would also be failing the second test because the 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 more significant it's not just a test of humility. Like, do you acknowledge the fact that you might get killed in these adventures, and so are you willing to prepare your soul against that event? It's not just that, right? The adventures that he is going to be confronting are themselves holy. It is like coming into contact with the holiness of communion, right? You don't do that with your sins, with your hands still dirty with your sins, right? You've got to shrive yourself first. So the fact that Bors is like, oh, heck yeah, let's do that, right? I'm going to shrive myself and then I'll be ready for the adventures, right? King Pelis is like, that's it. You, you got it, 
right? You're starting off your adventures on the right foot. And bonus, if you die, your your queen confessed, so you're fine, right? Um, but it's not just about that kind of that kind of prudence. And Bruce, exactly, it wouldn't be dreading God if you refused confession. That dreadeth God. That that's the fear of God, right? Um, uh, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. Um, uh, so so again, uh, Sir Bors is uh, is passing here, um, passing the test. That is okay. Um, the adventures that he undertakes. We saw this a little bit. We got we got a little bit of a warm-up act on this kind of thing with Lancelot and the tomb and the dragon. Remember that? And Thon Sir Boris was war where come in an hideous lion. So Sir Boris dressed him to that lion, and anon the lion browfed him his shield, and with his sword Sir Boris smote off the lion's head. Reeked so, forthwithal, he saw a dragon on the court, passing perilous and horrible, and there seemed to him that there were letters mad, mad of gold written in his forehead. And Sir Bors thought that the letters magged a signification of King Arthur. He's labeled, the dragon is labeled King Arthur. And reeked so, there came an horrible libbard and an old. And there they fauked long and did great battle to getters. And at the last the dragon spit out of his mouth as it had been on a hundred dragons. And leakly all the small dragons slew the old dragon and tore him all to pieces. And anon, forthwithal, there come an old man into the hall, and he set him down in a fire chire, and there seemed to be two adders about his neck. And then the old man had an harp, and there he sang an old lie of Joseph of Arimathea, how he come into this land. And when he had sungen this old, sungen, this old man bade Sir Bors go from thence, for here shall ye have no more adventures. Yet full worshipfully have you enchieved this, and better shall ye do hereafter. And then Sir Bors seemed that there come the wheatest dove that ever he saw, with a little golden censer in her mouth. And anon therewithal the tempest ceased, and passed away, that afore was marvellous to hear. So was all that court full of good savours. All right. Um... And no, Brian, sometimes the allegory is not subtle at all. Um, and not meant to be, right? In fact, uh, it will often get interpreted to us very plainly, right? Um, this is going to be a cottage industry. I, I really like, there's, there's going to be a boom uh, in Logris. All of the unemployed hermits out there, are going to get full-time jobs soon interpreting allegories, right? And I always, I always found this kind of charming uh, as an English professor, you know, um, thinking of like a, a growth industry, right, in, in uh, like symbolic interpretation, uh, you know, where all of a sudden that's like, you know, the hot job on the market. It was, it's kind of a, you know, uh, it, it was sort of a little personal fantasy. Um, but anyway, I... Yes, Bruce, this should remind you of the allegorical play at the top of Mount Purgatory in Dante. It's very similar in one sense. Uh, what we're getting on the top of Mount Purgatory in, in the earthly paradise in Dante is a reenact, is a, an enact, it's a pageant, right? Um, 
an enacted allegory like this, which he sees played out in front of him. And that kind of thing is going to happen quite a bit. These are not just stories that people are told. It's visions that they will have, things that they will see in front of them, adventures. And the adventures increasingly become not about the adventures themselves, right? Like in the old days, Sir Lancelot goes into a castle and what does he find? There's like a couple giants who are holding the land hostage or maybe they've captured a damsel or something or maybe Arthur, there's a giant up on the hill, you know, who's raping damsels to death and queen's daughters, you know, so there's like a real giant and real damsels and a real, you know, it's it's just, it's, it's, it's a thing. It might have a kind of symbolic overlay, but these are, practical adventures, right? The adventures that Sir Bors has here and that are going to be happening increasingly are impractical adventures, right? Um, these are, the whole point of the adventures is the meaning and the message uh, that they're going to have. And here, of course, it comes conveniently annotated in gold letters, right? Um, but now notice the whole thing isn't spelled out in gold letters. We only get the gold letters on the one thing, which is the dragon, and that helps us to understand. So who's the Libbard? Who's the horrible old Libbard who is fighting with the dragon? Right? Um, and what are the small dragons that come spitting out of the mouth of the old dragon and which tear the old dragon to pieces? Right? Um... Well, we know who the um, the old Libbard is, right? We already have the key to that particular allegory. Who's the Libbard? Who's an old leopard? Anybody remember the old leopard? It was carved on that tomb that Lancelot opened. Lancelot's the old leopard. Remember the old leopard that begets the young lion? Who is Galahad, right? So uh, Lancelot is the old leopard. So we're going to have the horrible old leopard fighting with the dragon, which is labeled King Arthur. But it's not the leopard who's going to kill him, right? The old dragon is going to be destroyed by all the little dragons that come out of his mouth, right? Um... I suspect that the lion whom Sir Bors decapitates is Satan. Um, and by so... <laughs> when you're confused, when you're trying to figure out the allegories, if you guess Jesus or Satan, you, you, you've got a pretty good, you got pretty good odds of being right. But they're not always purely immoral. They're sometimes political, like this one is. All right. Anyway... Here's another example of what we see the Holy Grail doing, wandering about the countryside. Uh, this is when Sir Percival and Sir Ector, before they find, they team up to find Sir Lancelot, encounter each other, fight, and maim each other, and have this hilarious conversation. Hilarious conversation here. Alas, sighed Sir Percival, and my name is Sir Percival de Gallus, which hath marred my quest to seek Sir Launcelot, and now am I sicker that I shall never finish my quest, for ye have slain me with your hondas. 
It is not so, sighed Sir Ector, for I am slain by your hondes, and may not live. And therefore I require you, said Sir Ector unto Sir Parsifal, ride ye here fast to a priory, and bring me a priest, that I may receive my saviour, uh, my saviour, for I may not live. And when ye come to the court of King Arthur, tell not my brother, Sir Launcelot, how ye slew me, for then wall he be your mortal enemy, but ye may say that I was slain in my quest as I sucked him. Alas, said Sir Percival, ye say that thing that never wall be, for I am so faint for bleeding that I may not stoned. How shall I then talk my horse? Then they both mad great dole out of measure. This will not avail, said Sir Percival, and then he canaled down and mad his prayer devoutly unto Almighty Jesu, for he was one of the best knictes of the world at that time, in whom the very faith stood most in. Reeked so there come by the holy vessel, the Sancreal, with all manner of sweetness and savour, but they could not see readily who bar the vessel. But Sir Percival had a glimmering of the vessel, and of the maiden that bare it, for he was a perfect maiden. And forthwithal, they were as whole of hide and limb as ever they were in their life. Then they gaff thunkings to God with great mildness. So the Holy Grail wanders by and heals the both of them. And yes, Karina, I find this competition of like, you know, neither one of them believes that the other one is mortally wounded, right? And that, you know, no, man, I can't get on my horse. Are you crazy? Uh, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is fantastic. But note the shift, right? This sounds like Balin and Balin all over again, right? On the one hand, and then it changes. And how does it change? How do we end up with a comedy instead of a tragedy here? Um, because Percival is one of the best knights of the world, not just in the old sense. Is Percival top five on the leaderboard? He's pretty good, but I don't think he's top five in the leaderboard in the old sense. Would he beat Sir Lamarack? Would he beat um, uh, Sir Palamides? I'm not sure he would. I don't think, certainly don't think he'd beat Tristram. Um, He's not one of the best knights in the world by the old standards, but he is one of the best knights of the world by the new standards that King Peles was just articulating, right? Why, as you can see immediately afterwards, he was one of the best knictes of the world at that time in whom the very fife stood most in, right? All of those things together, his hardiness, his worship, but also his loving and dreading God, Right. And his turning in faith in prayer at this point. Anybody else do that? Right. Have we seen Balin and Balin didn't do that. Right. Um, we see lots of farewell, cruel world speeches when people are dying or even, you know, commend me to my lady or whatever. Um, this turning in a faithful prayer unto almighty Jesus is not something that we have seen before. Um, and Almighty Jesus responds, right? Like in person, the Sancreal, which has his blood in it, uh, appears and heals the both of them. And notice the emphasis, they can't see it or who is bearing it. Um, that's important, right? They know it's there. And Percival can just get a glimmering, but Hector can't see it at all. 
Uh, they can, you can smell the grail. You always smell the grail when it's there. You can taste the grail. The food that you like best in the world may just appear in front of you when the grail comes by. You can smell it, you can taste it, but you can't see it. Or who's carrying it. You might see the dove, you might see the censer, right? Um, so you might see the symbols of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about before. But the grail, that's different. Okay. Um, speaking of different, coming towards the end here, but uh, um, yeah, Gerald, there is that, yes, the new leaderboard rankings are by how much of the grail you sense as it goes by. Exactly. Um, how close are you to seeing the grail? Uncovered, right? Um, how fully can you experience the presence of the Holy Grail? Yes, that's going to be a great way, a great indicator of the new leaderboard. Because um, the old leaderboard is going to get thrown right out. And this is the moment, of course, when it begins to go out the window when Galahad arrives at the court. So he, Lancelot, is brought by a, 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 a damsel right, to this nunnery. See your side they are. We bring you here this child, the which we have nourished, and we pry you to mock him knicked, for of a more worthier man is hond, may he not receive the order of knickthood. Sir Launcelot beheld this young squire, and saw him samely and demure as a dove, with all manner of good features, that he wend of his age, never to have seen so fire a form of a man. Then sighed Sir Launcelot, Cometh this desire of himself? He and all they said, Yes. Then shall he, sighed Sir Launcelot, receive the order of Knichthod at the reverence of, of the high feast. So that night Sir Launcelot had passing good cheer, and on the morn at the hour of prime, at Galahad's desire, he made him knicked, and sighed, God mock you a good man, for of beauty fileth you none as only that is no living. Now, fair seer, sighed Sir Launcelot, will ye come with me unto the court of King Arthur? Nay, said he, I will not go with you at this time. The allegorical pressure of the story has is already broadening, right? Is already moving outwards. Um, notice how all of this already has an allegorical overcast to it. Right. Um, Lancelot is knighting Sir Galahad. Number one on the old leaderboard is the one making the new number one on the new leaderboard a knight. Right. Um, we're having, we're seeing, this is the transition that we're seeing here, right? The old leopard knighting the young lion here. Um, but will he go with him to King Arthur's court? No. He will not go with, they will not arrive together. It has to, um, that wouldn't quite fit Galahad's idiom, right? Lancelot has to go first, and then Galahad come after, because that's how it works. And so that needs to be enacted here. Um, now, Devor, I'm trying to remember if in this passage... Lancelot knows for sure who that this is his son, that he knows that this is Galahad. I think he does. I can't remember. 
Yes, Zach, if you're thinking about John the Baptist and Jesus, yes, there is something John the Baptist, this, this scene should remind you of the baptism of, of Jesus by John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist being all like, you know, I, I'm unworthy to untie the latchet of his shoes, right? Um, you know, I have more need to be baptized of thee, right? Um, but he, um, but it's how it's supposed to go, right? And we see the dove descending, right? Um, Yes, the old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Uh, yep, mm-hmm. we're getting that. Now, all things are not new, right? But the new world has come, is arriving to Arthur's court. But it's not going to arrive arm in arm with Lancelot because Lancelot is part of that old world, in some ways the center of that old world. Okay. Then the sword and the stone floats down the river. Now, those of you with retentive memories will recall this is the sword and the stone that that Merlin set up in one of Merlin's final acts that we got from him uh, before he went away. Um, he took this is Balin's sword, the one that he drew from the scabbard, the one with which he lopped off the Lady of the Lake's head, um, the one with which he killed his own brother. And he takes, Merlin takes that sword and he sticks it in the stone and he puts that special um, hilt on it, remember, that only the best knight in the world can, can, can handle. Um, and he sticks it in the stone and sets the stone to floating in the water so it's going to float downstream just in time for when Galahad is going to arrive. Merlin already knew, right? Um, so he had it set up on a timer to float downstream. Um, and it's just in time to be the marvel that King Arthur needs to see before he can go to meet on Pentecost, right? So all the Canictas went with him, and when they come unto the river, they found there a stone flating, as it were of red marble, and therein stuck a fire-rich sword, and the pommel thereof was of precious stones, wrought with letters of gold subtly. Of course, it's Merlin. Than the Baroness read the letters which sighed in this wise. Never shall man tuck me hence, but only he by whose side I ought to hung, and he shall be the best kneeked of the world. So when the king had seen the letters, he said unto Sir Launcelot, Fair seer, this sword ought be yours, for I am sure ye be the best kneeked of the world. Than Sir Launcelot answered full soberly, Sir, it is not my sword. Also, I have no hardiness to set my hand thereto, for it longeth not to hung by my side. Also, who that assayeth to tuck it, and fileth of that sword, he shall receive a wound by that sword, that he shall not be long whole after. And I wall that ye wait, this psalm die shall the adventure of the Sancreal begin, that is called the Holy Vessel. Now, if you're asking, how does Lancelot know all this stuff? How does he know? I mean, it's written on the sword about the best knight in the world. And, you know, he believes that Galahad is the best knight and not him. And he's read that on the tomb. And so, so you know, he's clued in about all that. Well, how did he find out this stuff about the wound that will be inflicted if you try to pull out the sword and it isn't yours? And how does he know the adventures of the Sangreal are going to begin today? My only answer to those questions is he's been living in the kingdom of King Pelis for a while now, right? So he's gotten the whole, like, spoiler system worked out. He, Lancelot also now knows what's going to happen, apparently, just like they did. Um, so, um, 
Yeah. Um, and Karita, I agree. Arthur really is super well-meaning, isn't he? Right? That, you know, the trust and affection in his voice there. You're the best knight of the world. They, Look, it's your sword, Lancelot. Right? And Lancelot says, no, that is not my sword. He says full soberly. Right? I am not the best knight in the world anymore. He knows this. So there are a couple things here. One, he knows the world is changing. Right? But two, he's le sh- still le chevalier mafette, right? He's still the knight who trespassed. Um, Lancelot embraces the new leaderboard and does not see himself as... Before, it would have been humility, and honestly, false humility, for him to say, oh, no, no, no. You know, when he was like, no, 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 I'm not the best knight in the world. He knew he was. And everybody else knew that he was, right? This is not false modesty. Arthur seems to think that he is talking like that, like just out of humility and courtesy, um, not wanting to boast. But that's not what we hear, I think, when he's soberly saying, I do not have the hardiness to set my hand to that. I am not going to claim to be the best knight in the world because he has a much lower opinion of himself than he had before. He has fallen. He knows it. Most people don't know it, right? They just think he had one of those bouts of madness that all the good knights have sooner or later, but he's all better now, and so everything is back to normal, right? Things are not back to normal for Lancelot. Um, He chose to return to Arthur's court. Was that in itself a mistake? Did he do wrong? Is he trying to reconcile? Is he trying to repent? Is he foolish to have come back? Is he doing folly again? Right? Should he have just stayed away? I don't know, but he is, again, his opinion of himself has clearly and permanently changed. He does seem like a wiser knight now, Stephen. I agree. Um, Bruce says if he'd never slept with Elaine, would he have tried to draw the sword? Yeah, I would think so. I would definitely think so. Um, had this, you know, had this come floating down the stream right after the tournament at Lana Zepp or something, would Lancelot have, have done it? Now, he might have deferred. He might have let others try first. Um, you know, not just swaggering up to it and being like, excuse me, boys, this is my sword, right? Um, I mean, he would have been courteous. He would have been humble. But yeah, no, I totally think he would have taken it before. Um but not anymore. Not anymore. Um, all right. I should stop before the Holy Grail shows up. Well, before Galahad shows up. Um, so we'll continue with that. So read. Uh, looking, I'm making notes here. I'm just doing spontaneously telling you what the assignment is, which I didn't want to do. Um, read through the Sir Lancelot. Uh, Section. So we have the, uh, so the, 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 the departure is what we're on, then the miracle section, and then the bits about Percival and, and the, uh, the, the bit about Sir Lancelot there. Up to, but not including, the part about Sir Gawain. Um, and we'll begin to see how this new world progresses now that all the rules are changed. And of course, we will begin next time by looking at 
the culmination, right? The pinnacle. When King Arthur is going to go over that high point on Fortune's Wheel, right? When he will finally be all the way up at the top. Um, So anyway, uh, thanks so much for joining me. I will be back next week as usual. I'll be gone on Tuesday night, so we won't have Exploring the Lord of the Rings next week. Um, But I will have uh we i will be home for wednesday so we can have Mythgard academy i do have to say i'm gonna be i'm gonna be out of commission for two weeks at the end of february unfortunately i'm gonna be uh traveling on the last wednesday of uh of february and i'm gonna be busy the week before too unfortunately so that means that next week the 13th will be the last um wednesday of february that will, but we'll be back on the first on the first Wednesday of March. So that's the sixth, I think, of March. Uh, after that, so anyway, just to keep you abreast of what's coming down the road. Thanks, everybody. More how more Holy Grail, more uh, new moral world, more allegorical interpretations next time uh, uh, as we continue our discussion. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.